Song number 71. Jonathan has asked that we mark that and use that at the appropriate time during the service this evening. As always, we're each so greatly blessed with the opportunity to come together this evening. So many individuals around the world that you and I know of as in terms of our missionaries and their efforts where brethren have a difficult, persecuted, challenging time to assemble and yet we can do so in the comfort and tranquility of this moment and hour and do so with all the fullness and blessing of fellowship with one another and the fellowship we can enjoy with our Heavenly Father. In 1 John 1 verse 7, as a text reminding us of those truths, we read, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sins. The fellowship thus that prompts us in this moment and hour is certainly a moving thing that can help us throughout the fullness of this week. As we begin the lesson this evening, as was mentioned earlier, we are blessed with visitors, as is often the case, and we're certainly appreciative and thankful that you have come our way. In addition to all of that, Brother Jim Sandusky, one of the visitors tonight, he and his wife, and we're certainly thankful for them, and I thought it might be at least well to, for each of us to take note. They have visited with us through, throughout the months and years on a number of occasions, he has most recently been preaching in this area, but has uh, now accepted a position to preach in the state of Georgia. So I understand they'll be moving in that direction very, very shortly, and I'm sure we at Pippin, certainly Jim, wish you and your family all the best as you take up your efforts to preach the gospel of Christ in the state of Georgia. The endurance of the Word is the topic of our lesson this evening. As you might have noted from the lesson reading in the text in 1 Peter 1, verses 22 to 25, We'll revisit that in just a moment and take a renewed look, a refreshed consideration of some of the features concerning the endurance of the Word of God. It is with that thought in mind, however, that some introductory or at least initial thoughts might move us in this direction. Endurance is a quality. I feel sure that we each consider to be rather noble. We admire it in others. When there's someone who we know that their journey through life is a difficult one compared to so many other people, and yet they withstand, they endure, they emerge, and yet seemingly don't complain that much, we admire those individuals, for we understand that their makeup and the integrity of their character has led them to understand the duty and the challenge of the work before them, and they proceed to do it though it isn't pleasant, and though it isn't always terribly easy. The word endurance, in fact, we might start, means this. To quote a definition, admittedly from an English dictionary, but it simply means the ability to withstand, or to say that differently, the ability to endure hardship or adversity. Other words that go along with that, terms such as duration and permanence. I think we each have some consideration as to the meaning of endurance, and again, we look upon it as such a noble quality and a noble characteristic. I'm sure you and I are aware, even in our families, of individuals who have endured much. Maybe you have sat at the feet of your grandfather and listened to him speak about the Great Depression years or the years of World War II and the capability of endurance that was his lot and that of his family as they endured with unshakable character. Again, as we look upon that with an air of appreciation and also an air of noteworthiness, it is the case tonight that we will give some thought to the Word of God in its durability, that is to say, its duration. 
It is for that reason the second to the last line on that slide does at least remind us of this. As we've noted so far, that matter of endurance, that matter of durability, sometimes you and I are aware of products, things that we appreciate. We go to the store and buy it, and this company has been making this product more or less unaltered and unchanged for decades, and yet it works well. It's a trustworthy name, and time and again, we turn to it to solve the needs of what it is that's before us. As you and I give thought to the endurance of those things, how much more noble and how much more exciting ought it to be to give some thought to the endurance of the Word of God. The lesson text before us this evening was from the closing verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. The last four verses of that chapter are those that Brother Greg read for us just a moment ago. With those thoughts in mind, I would invite us at least to devote a moment and ask what's the setting for the entirety of the book. And could it be that our consideration of those closing verses to chapter 1 might even be more heightened once we gain a larger feeling for the forest, if you will, that is the major thrust and thinking of the book of 1 Peter. Because with that, this little closing paragraph in chapter 1 fits so nicely and it fits so powerfully into the overall message of that book. The book of 1 Peter has, of course, but five chapters. And in fact, many ways it might be said that it presents five great things. Chapter 1 is the great salvation of verses 3 through 5. The thought that there is a place that's undefiled and that fadeth not away, and furthermore it's reserved in heaven for you if you are those who have accepted the calling of God and live faithfully to that calling. But chapter 2 quickly points out the great Savior, the great example that is Christ. In fact, in verses 21 to 24 of 1 Peter chapter 2, we notice it is He who in fact suffered for us and what a great example then He is to us. So in the two chapters we've seen the great salvation and the great example. In chapter 3 is the great responsibility, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and with fear. The thought then of the salvation and the example and the responsibility brings us to chapter 4 and verse 16 in which there we see the great name. The greatness of the name that you and I are blessed to wear, the name Christian. Isn't it true that with regard to that name, we notice, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. What name? The name Christian. And finally, in chapter 5, we have the great shepherd. Just as surely as we are blessed at the Pippin Church with shepherds, these men who serve us as elders, there is, however, a chief shepherd, a great shepherd, verses 4 and 5 of 1 Peter 5. That great shepherd, of course, is Christ Jesus, our Lord. With those five great things set before us, notice how they all revolve around and help us appreciate the circumstances and the situations in which these brethren found themselves, those to whom the book of 1 Peter was first written. It's rather easy to appreciate the fact that upon reading these five chapters, these individuals, at this stage in life at least, were called upon to endure a fair amount of opposition, difficulty, and hardship because of their association to Christ. 
In other words, they found the road tough going because they were Christians. And yet throughout that book, we nonetheless find the Holy Spirit through Peter reminding them of the urgency to endure. To endure, not to give up, not to cast in the towel, if you will, but rather to remain steadfast, loyal, faithful, and true. Notice some of the language we find in passages like these. In 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, we can rather interestingly observe there that this amazing message is given. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, are in heaviness through manifold temptations. These individuals were thus in heaviness. And the literal meaning means they were put to grief. They were not having a completely pleasant experience because of being a Christian. But yet the next verse goes on to say that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. They were reminded that despite the fact that things might be a bit hard and bleak, that the trial of your faith is nonetheless valuable, it's precious, it is something to not give up on. It's to understand that when you emerge from that trial of faith, that the final result of that journey shall in fact be bright. For the victory of salvation, verse 9, shall in fact be yours. Notice also, that message, the trial of your faith, perhaps points us to another appearance in chapter 2 of this message of suffering. This time I've simply written it in a much briefer listing of the verses. But in verses 20 and following of chapter 2 of the same book, we see it says, For what glory is it, if when ye be buffeted, for your faults ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Did you note with me again the usage of the word suffering? If when you in fact suffer despite the fact you have done well and still that suffering comes to you, then if you take it patiently and well, what an acceptable thing that is to God. Note also chapter number 3 as yet another mention of this same thing. Verse 17 this time. On that occasion we read, For it is better if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. We already have seen a frequent then occurrence and mention of this word suffering. Note chapter 4. This time it's verses 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Finally, one last mention, this time from chapter 5, verse number 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered, a while make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. It may well be that last one is the most telling of the group, at least for the concourse of tonight's lesson. Again, he said, after that ye have suffered a while, they were going to suffer, and the end perhaps was not going to be within the next day or two. It was going to be for an extended time yet. And he says, after you emerge from that, then he says, you should be perfected, established, strengthened, and settled. 
I wonder in light of those matters, if this mention in the closing four verses of chapter 1, this about the matter of endurance and its relation to the Word of God, maybe that could be a great encouragement even to us tonight to reflect on exactly how God's Word fits into all of this. It is with those thoughts in mind how special it is to consider the gospel system. Mine, in fact, we say it as bluntly as this. Christ suffered for each of us. He endured the urgency of the cross and all the agony and anguish that went with it, not only in those moments of the cross itself, but in those hours leading up to it, and even in the months leading up to it. Jesus knew well, Luke 18, verses 31 to 34, that the cross was coming. He even forewarned the apostles that when, in fact, I arrive there and I am removed or, in fact, crucified. He urged them to not lose their heart and not lose their faith. Thus, the matter of what the Lord knew perhaps can help us appreciate our lot in terms of endurance as well. Oh, what Christ has endured for us. Can you and I not endure at least some for Him? When you and I, in fact, face then those problems and hardships of life, Christ didn't give up on them, should we? Should we lose our faith? Should we, in fact, turn and rebel against the things of God because the way is too hard or the way is not smooth enough? God didn't promise us a smooth way, did He? He promised if we're faithful, the end, of course, will well have been worth anything that we're called upon to suffer here. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Romans 8, 18. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, on that occasion do we not read in a rather penetrating and probing passage the very thought that the God of heaven, the very one who not only has made things possible in Christ, it is He who by the same token is aware that we are buffeted with affliction day by day. But yet, he said, though we outwardly perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Apparently, we have access to a source. We have access to a headwater, if you please, that makes endurance not only possible, but in fact makes it an almost guaranteed thing if we will but follow it and we will use its resources. And so tonight, might we ask about the endurance of the Word of God? the endurance of the holy text. As you come near the closing part of that slide, it does lead us to one final set of thoughts about the matter of endurance before we revisit those ideas even more thoroughly. Speaking of Christ, isn't it by Him that we are redeemed? These strangers, these individuals to whom the book of 1 Peter was written, again, they were in a hard lot. But yet, Peter reminded them, Christ is the one through whom you've been redeemed. And furthermore, you weren't redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but rather with that which is the precious blood of Christ. Something far more valuable than silver or gold or other finery. Today, aren't you and I so richly blessed because we too have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? And by that blood we have been made whole and clean again if we're faithful to His Word. It's no wonder that directly following that is the very passage that again was read earlier and the one to which we shall turn our attention for the rest of the lesson tonight. 
the endurance of the word. That thought is very, very, rather clearly stated twice. First of all, in verse 23, being born again, Peter wrote, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. And then verse 25, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. I then think it would be valuable, and I would ask that we each do that for the rest of the lesson this evening to ask, what then is being said here about the Word of God and its durability, its endurance, its qualities that Peter expressly mentions here? As we give some thought to each of them, might we begin in the following way. First of all, the meaning of the words themselves. We might well start with those words of verse 23. For the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. Those words, liveth and then also abideth, literally mean as follows. It lives and it remains. And you'll notice, not in past tense, nor yet purely in future tense, but rather an ongoing continuous matter. They not only have been alive, but they are alive. And they not only have remained, but they are remaining. The word of the Lord liveth and abideth. Isn't it interesting that that seems to match so marvelously with the famous text in the Hebrew letter, the one that reads in such a loving way so parallel to this one. I've listed it for your consideration. But it's found in Hebrews 4 verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I wonder, what is it then to say that God's Word is living? After all, from a biological standpoint, one wouldn't say this book is alive. It can't grow. It can't move on its own. It can't do anything that a biologist would say would lead one to conclude it's living. But yet the Holy Spirit, not once, not twice, but yea, more than that, has affirmed it's living. It's living. One of the other things, though, about the definition of being alive and one of the other characteristics that goes with it is the opportunity to react and to respond to one's environment. That is to say, to have a means whereby something is able to react to what the pressures and the thrusts of the environment about it are. Now, as we give thought to the Word of God, based on that consideration, is it alive? Is it able to address any need that the human family may have? Is it able to address any problem, any matter, any circumstance, any conundrum that the human family in any amount may face? And with that, we have the certain answer of the Scriptures, don't we? It has all of the answers that, in fact, God has delivered to the human family. You'll notice again it says, it is not at all a dead matter. So many things that men have written may well be cataloged as dead. For instance, we ask our students in school to master and learn and read, sometimes with less excitement than others admittedly, but often to read things like Shakespeare or Robert Frost or, Will or, or, or Poe or one of the other poets. In fact, many times they're asked questions about the meanings of novels or short stories or poems when all the while we understand that what was written was no more than the perceptions of a man. 
And sometimes even they were questionable. But yet we understand that this was the fullness and that it is not dead. It is as needful to the life of any person today as a hundred years ago, as five hundred years ago. To say that it's living brings us to that second word. Peter again noted that it abideth. It remains. And furthermore, there is an adverb following it that says forever. It's not that it will remain for a generation. It's not that it will remain for an extended period of time, but rather he says forever. We have at our disposal the absolute revelation of the God of heaven. And this word lives and abides forever. What then a tragedy it is to ignore it to turn to sources of information other than it, when it alone has the answers to the things being asked. As you give thought to that wording of verse number 23, liveth and abideth forever, isn't it amazing that two verses later it says, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. I would ask you to think with me about that phrase. That word endure means to abide or to remain. And as Peter presented this, it really is a quotation from the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 40, which is one of the noteworthy sections of that part of the book of Isaiah, it's so well known because in it we find the most notable prophecy of the coming of John the Baptist. The one that would be the forerunner of the Master, the one that would be the voice crying in the wilderness. It is in that very context that we find the fact the word of the Lord abideth forever. Those two fit together so nicely because John the Baptist was come preparing the way for the Christ and he was hailing the matter of the word of God, making ready for the coming of Jesus. And thus the writing was, that word of God endureth forever. Peter quotes it ever so appropriately and here asserts it to those suffering brethren to whom the book was written. Despite your suffering, this word will not fade. It will not shrink. Its promises are true. They won't pass away with the fading embers of time. You can count on them as a guaranteed reality. And thus, when Peter wrote that there is a place in heaven reserved for you, and when he wrote that it's undefiled and fadeth not away, he meant it. And he intended them to understand what a glorious and joyous promise that in fact was. As you give thought to the word of the Lord enduring forever, it is to be noted there at the bottom some interesting features I would ask us to at least briefly consider. The endurance of the word of God stands so opposed to the things man has written. I have had the opportunity, sometimes it's been happier than others, but the opportunity at least to visit many times a library due to the need for something a professor has required or asked. And as one reads the things that various and sundry individuals throughout the ages has written, quite often one can't help but be impressed with how short-lived it was. So often what was written as the highest scholarly knowledge and attempt of that era is now understood to be thoroughly and completely inadequate what was once thought to be true in many arenas of science is today known not to be true. But yet at the time, the ripest scholars, often Nobel Prizes were won because gentlemen set forth a theory that at the time was fantastic. But today it's not.
Think about what that says. The brightest minds perhaps the world has known have written things that today are not enduring. They are not any longer with us. They may be read as historical interest. They may be read as historical curiosity. But in terms of that, that being the way things are, that is not recognized as truth any longer. That's wholly different than from the Word of God, isn't it? The Word of God endureth forever. With that in mind, perhaps some additional considerations could come our direction and also come our way. I've written them in the following way. As you give thought to these things of man, the things that seem to fade, sometimes more quickly, sometimes less quickly, but they fade. The human family has had the opportunity to, to construct many things, be it matters written on a page or be it things that were constructed and built with men's hands. And yet, little by little, they are fading, they are eroding, they are passing away with the moving of time. But yet it isn't so with this book. There are three things, it seems to me, worthy of some additional consideration. What is it that results in the things of man having less than the quality of endurance? Well, on the one hand, sometimes it simply has to do with the features and characteristics of the natural world in which we live. What about those pyramids in Egypt? There isn't any question that they're impressive to see. We can see pictures of them, read articles about them, and stand in amazement just watching the pictures of them we have seen. But yet we still know they are eroding with each passing moment. As the sands of time and the winds blow it past them, they are bit by bit eroding themselves away. As we noted earlier, the same, at least in parallel fashion, is true of the things men have written. Isn't that impressive then to think that's not true of this book? It is just as vital, just as correct today as it was a hundred years ago. In matters, even scientifically, what this book says is true. And it does have scientific truth in it. For instance, when this book declared the earth is round, long before scientists had discovered it, but wasn't the Bible right all along? Isaiah 40 verse 22. Isn't it interesting to consider that in many other arenas and areas of even philosophical thought, this book is correct. It has endured and stood every test of time. What's more, you might give thought to another thing. What about other changes that ultimately result in the removal of things men have accomplished? Sometimes it has to do with human priority. There is a foundation that one can see in a distance in the northern part of the panhandle of Texas. There was a time when individuals, men, decided it would be the proper thing to do to construct a large edifice, a structure, a building that would in fact serve the purposes of a school in that part of the state. However, the policy changed before the building was completed. All that was completed was the foundation, but it serves as a testimony to what changes when humans change their mind. There was a waste of resources because human policy changed and the opinion and the needs, at least as they perceived it, was no longer the same. Notice that the structure wasn't completed. Thankfully, we don't have that kind of a problem with the Word of God. We don't have to worry about God changing His mind. 
He has affirmed the reality and fullness of what's required to make it to that place called heaven. And we can rest assured He won't change His mind. He sent His Son to make that a reality for those that are the faithful. And to that we can hang every hope that is yours and mine. Isn't it true that we are indeed saved by hope? Romans 8, 24. And that hope that in fact is the undergirding character of our spirit and movement toward eternity is a hope that thus can be strong. Paul did write in 1 Corinthians 13, 13 that there abide three rather noble and powerful things, faith, hope, and love. Hope was one of the elements in that listing, wasn't it? But maybe there's a third element we can notice. I hinted at this earlier, but perhaps a perhaps more extensive note might well be in order. The things that humans recognize as truth often find their way in terms of change. I use that truth in a slightly different way than I do as we speak about it concerning the Bible. Science is ever on a search for truth. To find the laws of physics or the laws of chemistry or the characteristics of biology that describe the natural world around us. And quite often it's desirable to set those principles forth in terms of scientific law. But yet isn't it still true that those laws are subject to experimentation and they're subject to careful deliberation from the human family? God's laws are not like human laws. Human laws can be repealed. Human laws can be altered. Congress can pass a law today and as soon as the next president comes in, he may well, by way of administration, find a way to assert that it be repealed. God's laws are not repealed. They shall stand, as Peter said, enduring forever. It is the thought then that it is these same laws that you and I shall face at the day of judgment. For isn't it still the truth that the Lord Himself said in John 12, 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. It is true then, isn't it, that the last day we shall face this word again. How tragic it would be to have ignored it in this life. No one will have to face it then and give answer to our failure and answer for our disobedience. How far better it would be to obey it now and have the joyous promise of its reward. It may be in light of all of that that it comes to beg us to at least ponder. This word we've seen that the Holy Spirit affirmed, it shall stand forever. But oh, how interesting has been the scene in history when many have had less than a noble interest in it. Men have sought to discredit it. Men have sought to eliminate it. Some have sought to, in fact, thrust it aside and destroy it. However, they have each failed. We have mentioned him more than once in lessons over the past several years, but his name rings ever so much with the ringing sound of an infidel, that French philosopher named Voltaire. In the latter part of the 1700s, he was bold and brash enough to affirm that within a hundred years' time there shall not be anyone with even a knowledge of a Bible except as an antiquarian historical seeker. He was just certain 
that with the enlightenment and as men and women believe more about the nature of science that it discoveries, that in their enlightenment they would have less and less interest and need for this book. And finally, it would be relegated to the dustbins of history. Of course, as you and I know, well over 200 years have now passed. Voltaire is dead and gone. He died in 1778. And yet, the Bible is alive and well. We have copies of it. It is by far every year the most purchased book. By far every year it is the book that is made the most available. You and I have the opportunity to read it, to study it, to consider it, to apply its teachings, and to live in accordance to that which it sets forth. Jesus did say, didn't He, in Matthew chapter 4, verse number 4, when the devil tempted him to turn stones to bread, it was Jesus who replied by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy and said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. You and I live then by this. If we aren't living by this, we really aren't living at all. We may be physically alive, but we aren't spiritually alive. We aren't alive in the sense of being associated with the giver of all life. Doesn't it beg us then to ask in such a beautiful fashion as we come near the last section of the lesson tonight about those passages that remind us of the high integrity that must associate to the Word of God. Peter has just reminded us that the Word of God liveth and abideth forever. With that, look at these verses on the last slide of the lesson tonight. These verses reminding us such as Psalm 119, verses 129 and 130. The entrance of thy word giveth light, and it giveth understanding unto the simple. Where do we find light? The entrance of God's word. Verse 140 of that same chapter, Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Verse 97 of that longest chapter in the Old Testament, Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. Verses 15 and 16 of that same chapter. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself also in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. We can almost hear the heart of David extolling the grandeur and greatness of the word of God, affirming I will not forget thy word. We can also see in verse 24 of that same chapter the fact that it is the word of God that served as David's counselor. Would we not be so much better off today if the human family, each one of us, would pursue this as our counselor, the one from whom we sought the most urgent advice? As you can see beyond that, a whole host of other passages challenge us to think about the integrity and nature of this Word of God. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. We noted earlier how that the things men have written pass away with the coming of the years. But it isn't so with this book. And that's something that is ever so glorious, is it not? You and I often think about, based on the teachings of Ecclesiastes, the worthiness and power of being a good steward so that we can allow our children to in fact enjoy things that we didn't have. But might I invite each of us to never forget the fact that by far the grandest thing we can help them to seat in their heart is a knowledge, love for, and appreciation for this book. Because once that is settled, 
All the other things, by God's promise, will take care of themselves. A love for the Word of God. Didn't the psalmist begin the book of Psalms in chapter 1 with these rather memorable words? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. What a contrast. And yet what a prompting motivation for you and also for me. In Deuteronomy chapters 4 and 12, even in that characteristic of the giving of the law of Moses, Moses urged by the very Word of God that the people never add to nor take from the law they had been given. They were not to add the slightest period, certainly not a sentence or a word, but they were also never to take anything from it. And that principle has remained in force all throughout, even with respect to the New Testament era. We are not to go beyond what's written, 1 Corinthians 4.2. And the Bible closes in Revelation 22 by reminding us that those who add to the words of the prophecy of this book shall find added to them the plagues written in it. And by the same token, those who remove matters from the book, that book of Revelation, will find their name removed from the Lamb's book of life. To say all that is to say that how blessed we are to have an enduring Word. It thus can meet every need of your life and every need of mine. It can address every satisfying character that you and I can ever in this life find ourselves in need to face. As we close this lesson tonight, giving some thought again to the endurance of the Word of God, in conclusion and summary, these thoughts perhaps wrap up tonight's lesson. In 66 rather amazing books, we have the totality of God's written revelation. And in those 27 New Testament books in particular, the reality of this current Christian age letters. Tonight, have you been obedient to them? Are you living faithfully to them? This Word will endure. Though men often choose to rebel against it and ignore it, they shall live to regret that. Tonight, would you and I not be wiser than that? If your life is not in harmony with the teaching of the Word of God, because you've never become a Christian, why not tonight? If we can assist you in your initial obedience to the gospel, we would be honored to do that. You need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the Master, as the Son of God to be baptized. If we can assist you in that way, why not tonight? And if you have become a Christian, but at this moment are not faithful, why not come back to the Word that shall endure forever and base your life upon that unshakable standard? If we can help you in that way tonight by praying for your forgiveness, to God from those sins in your life. We'd be honored to do that as well. Will you not come while together we stand and while we sing?